Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh. Joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? Fabulous, David. I'm tired from staying up every night to, to, to follow the events in Washington. Washington. Yes. So yeah. as, as listeners may have guessed, our topic this week is the uh, election of a Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, after 15 ballots. This is not quite unprecedented, but it, it's uh, the first time in 100 years in which there have been any uh, ballots beyond the first one for the Speaker of the House, and so we want to talk about the role generally, what the Speaker of the House is and does, and uh, history of, of elections that precede this one that were contentious. Yes, we should say, uh, so a couple of things. So clearly we're out here on the cutting edge. We're one of the few uh, podcasts that's talking about this topic this week. <laughs> and, and as they do on the NPR politics podcast, it is 11.11 on Saturday morning as we record this. because we could UK be time. UK time, because we could be overtaken by events. Yes, but it, but it was literally hours ago that, that McCarthy received... Uh, enough votes to to get the uh, speakership after some pretty tumultuous scenes, especially last night. Oh, to be to be sure, some right? This was, these, these were interesting political theater, if if nothing else, and and uh, some some drama definitely. So let's talk about this. The speaker before we get to the details of, of of last night and this past week. Let's talk about the speakership generally. What strikes you about this issue about the speakership as a job? Well. It is mentioned in the Constitution, and I'll hand over to you to say yeah. something about that in a second. Uh, I, I think there's a, uh, you know, one of the things we try to do on this podcast is explain America to to our, it's kind of started by explaining the United States to some of our British students mm. and, and listeners, and uh, this is a good example of uh, two peoples divided by a common language, because when we say Speaker of the House, this is a role that will be familiar to our British listeners. Mm. And a lot of Americans, when they, you know, from watching Parliament and Prime Minister's questions, mm. the Speaker of the House in the U.S., of the House of Representatives, is quite different from the Speaker of the House of Commons. Now it is. Now, now, yeah, well, that's, yes, now it is. In that, they both are meant to kind of act as referees mm. and kind of set the rules. Um, they're both political roles, but the, the the speaker in the UK context is is supposed to be nonpartisan, even though they often have a partisan. Background. Both both in the Parliament in London and the one here in Edinburgh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, well, and I mean, one thing about I was actually thinking about the same comparison. I think when you've got a weak speaker in the United States, he's like the speaker in the UK. When you've got a strong speaker, he's a bit more like a prime minister in terms of driving legislative policies and having an agenda and being the, the leader of a political party. Um, Especially now, if their party, well, if the same party controls the White yeah. House, because then they're taking the legislative with lead, speed. which is equivalent to the prime minister in Westminster. Yeah, with, with a whole lot of caveats and, and restrictions, but, <laughs> but, but it, it, it can be... In that spectrum of different kinds of things, you need sort of a nonpartisan role and a, and a hyperpartisan. Whereas the speaker in the U.S., I mean, to get to the, mm. the matter at hand before we uh, just demonstrate our ignorance of parliamentary procedure here in the U.K. <laughs> 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 on a greater to a greater extent, um, the speaker in the U.S. is an overtly political role, although he or she mm. uh, also serves that parliamentary role of kind of setting the rules and, and acting as, a, as, a, as an umpire. Mm. It's an umpire where they're definitely calling balls and strikes for one side. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. That, that's quite clear. And, and the dispute this week 
was that well the dispute was about a lot of things ostensibly it was about the rules that McCarthy is going to implement mm. um, I think it was about other things as well as we'll probably get to um, but but the the speaker's role in the US the speaker of the House of Representatives is very much about um, both setting the agenda for their party but also acting as the kind of uh, well the chair of the house you know he's mm. he or she is the chair and they and they basically oversee the operations the day-to-day -day operations of the house of representatives and get to set the rules one reason we saw so much over the past week and this is a revelatory to a lot of people c-span the broadcaster was able to show us all kinds of angles this week because there was no speaker because the speaker sets the rules and if you watch c-span if you're ever mm. in an american hotel room and you put on c-span there's all there's a fixed camera yeah. that you know uh, focused on the on the well of the house usually and you don't see what's going on yeah. in the seats but because there were no rules this yeah. week C-SPAN could show us everything and that's emblematic of the kind of power of the speaker and the absence of that yeah. power this week before the election yeah the, the, I think one of the things we'll talk about is the relationship between the speaker and the rules committee varies over time and strong speakers have a you know an iron grip on the rules committee and, and weak speakers. Don't and I think one of the things actually the Freedom Caucus folks who were po who, who one of the concessions they got is they wanted a seat on the Rules Committee so they could help you know navigate those things not only about where the C-SPAN cameras go but other important procedural rules uh, that really sort of yeah well, what, what the game is that's right well so we'll get to that but what does the Constitution have to say about the Speaker David well it, it's interesting the Constitution mentions that there is going to be a Speaker it's in Article One Section Two Clause Five. It says that the House shall choose its speaker. And it's actually the first office that's named in the Constitution. It's named before the president. It's named before the vice president. It's named before any members of the Supreme Court or anybody else. It's the first sort of named position. But that's all that it says. So there's no other. So it's a, unlike other leadership roles in Congress, like Senate Majority Leader, other kinds of things people talk about all the time, this one actually is a constitutionally required role. You don't need to have any of the other things, uh, but this is a constitutionally required role. But that's all it says is it shall choose its speaker. Um, and it's one of the things that Congress must do. It's not Congress can choose its speaker. Congress can do with it. You know, most of Article One is about things Congress can do. And this is Congress shall. So they have to, it's, it's, it's one of the things that people have been paying attention to this week is Congress can't do anything else until they choose its speaker. And so, uh, but uh, it says very little. And I think that gives the office a lot of how much power it has. has been, been very flexible. There have been times when there's been very, very strong speakers and times when there have been very, very weak speakers. And, and, and you know, um, that's a function of, of you know, the structure of Congress and other kinds of things. David, one of the things we saw this week uh, because normally, uh, certainly for the past century, mm. uh, speakers have been elected on the first ballot. And usually it's known who the speaker is going to be before the, that ballot is held. So that yeah. ballot is largely, it, it, it's important, but it's ceremonial in the sense that the arm twisting has gone on in the, you know, within the party caucuses. And they know it's like meeting electoral college, right? Yeah. It's so, supposed uh, to be yeah. under normal circumstances. Used to be. Yeah. <laughs> but but so, so the outcome is, is preordained. Um, but this went on, as we know, for 15 ballots over four days or five four, days, four, five days. Thank you. Um, the time has lost all meaning. Um, and the people voting 
hmm. hadn't yet taken the oath. Some of them, had, well, none of them had taken their oaths of office. Yeah. Um, and so there was a weird kind of chicken or egg situation here where they were voting to choose the speaker as, as yeah. required by the Constitution, but they were not yet sitting congresspersons. Right. In fact, there were no sitting Congress people because they people who from the last Congress have been their terms expired. Yes, yes. So, so it is this weird uh, moment in, in in the congressional calendar, which there is no Congress and there can't be a Congress until you elect a speaker. Um, you know, and and there were consequences for this. People who need congressional services, one of the things that congressmen do is provide services to constituents for expediting passports or other kinds of odds and ends. They couldn't do any of those things. You know, usually a congressman person or a congressperson staff person can call up, let's imagine getting an expedited passport, call up the passport people and say, Congressman, blah, 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 wants help with the constituents getting a passport. Now, at this, like for the last week, none of those things happened, right? And so there were actual consequences on the ground for things. But in the past, mm. and I'm thinking, and we'll get to this in a moment, in, in your sanctuary in particular, uh, there, there were these prolonged fights that sometimes lasted a couple of months, months right. over the election of the speaker. And so what happened, I, I, we'll talk about those fights, mm. but I want to talk about what happens in the kind of nuts and bolts of how this operates, where there are congressmen, yes. they would have been men then, in Washington, Hanging out in boarding houses. Hanging out in boarding houses, but not being paid. Right. And supporting themselves? Well, well, Congress only met for about half the year. Right, sure. So, and most of these guys are, the vast majority of these guys are independently wealthy anyway. Um, The Congress is a vocation, not a profession. Um, uh, So, yeah, they were, they were, uh, you know, as these contentious debates were going on, but they couldn't do anything. They couldn't pass any legislation. Um, you know, thinking about what's going on this past week, they couldn't have um, classified briefings. Certain members of Congress, depending on which committees they're on, get classified briefings about this, that, and the other thing. They couldn't have those because they weren't members of Congress, technically. Um, there were some uh, House staff members who weren't getting paid this past week because Congress hadn't been authorized. There's been local legislation in D.C. that wasn't didn't get rubber stamped by Congress because uh, uh, Congress was not in session or the House was not in session because there was no House. Uh, so, yeah, it does create this weird limbo state before you can actually get people sworn in. So, all right, let, let's talk about the history of this, David. Do you want to deal with the history of contentious elections first or the history of the speakers? Let's, let's, talk, let's, let's, talk, about let's, speakers let's talk about strong speakers before we get to weak speakers. Let's, yes, let's, let's do that. Um you know who the first speaker is? I do. Frederick Muhlenberg. Okay, that, that's going to be a trivia question that for listeners. If you want to trust some people at your next dinner party. I knew you were going to ask that. And I, I have another answer prepared for a question I expect you're going to ask. Oh, jeez. Okay. But we'll, we'll get to that, too. Yeah. I did my homework this week, David. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's good. He does that one with you. It's a good way to start the semester. Um, one of the things that strikes me, though, about the, the early speakership is it does seem to be very much more in the British model, where the yes. speaker is... Supposed to be sort of a nonpartisan figure. The speaker is in charge of organizing the administration of the house and making sure that people don't speak too long and do all that kind of stuff and 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 sort of be the the, the adult in the room, if you will. Um, that seems to have, I think, been the speaker and uh, the role of the speaker more or less until Henry Clay, and I think he's really the first majorly important speaker. Yeah, I would agree with that. He's the first kind of 
speaker is powerful political figure and well deal maker in that prime ministerial version that you were talking about i I think henry clay definitely fits that role and he's speaker from 1811 to 14 1815 to 1820 and 1823 to 1825 yes um you want to talk about clay a little bit sure so he is he's a what makes him so important well i think there's 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 two things that make him important in terms of, of thinking of there's lots of things that make Henry Clay important. He's probably the most important political figure in American history that was not president. Do I agree with that? Yes, I think I agree with that. Um, he's important, I think, in two respects. One, uh, he really changed the role of the speaker. Uh, you know, prior speakers to him hadn't participated in floor debates. You know, they were they sort of stood said a book. Henry Clay goes and on the floor advocates for political positions. He has a political agenda he is a you know a leader on the floor in a way that prior speakers had not done so he changes the role in that important respect he makes it a much more active and partisan position um and he uses the speakership uh to to push through uh both you know a number of important political um his, his own political agenda he gets elected speaker uh, as a freshman, by the way, which I think is fascinating. So, you know, he's elected to Congress and he's immediately uh, elected as speaker. And then he goes on to phenomenally change the role. He's, it would be as if George Santos was elected speaker. Oh, God, help me. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the Santos story, that's a... Google it. Google it. Google it. Yeah, that's a whole thing. Um, but he's, you know, phenomenally important in the declaration of war in 1812 and in sort of marshalling support for that. He's phenomenally important in the election of 1824, which is an election he actually ran in um, for president, in which that gets thrown into the House uh, for uh, uh, adjudication and ends up him, his backing of uh, John Quincy Adams leads to that outcome. Um, and he has his own sort of ideas about the role of, of government the, uh, in terms of developing the economy. He has this uh, program called the, the American System of of Supports for uh, industry and tariffs and what have you um, that he is able to push through as Speaker of How the Speaker of the House, and he is arguably, while he's Speaker, just as important as the President, if not potentially more so. Um, In part because this is a period when the presidency wasn't that strong. To be sure, um, you know, and one thing about being Speaker, you know, he was Speaker for the better part of a decade and a half, is you can be speaker for a very long time. He's also hugely influential afterwards, mm. in part, so, so so his speakership and his candidacy yeah. for presidency. For yeah, he runs for president three yeah. times. Um, uh, keep him in the public eye, but he's a major political figure for the first half of the 19th century. Right. So, so his career is not over in 1825 once he ceases being speaker, quite okay. the contrary. But his speakerships yeah. help make that possible. He's Secretary of State for a right. while and various other things. Um, yeah, he dies in 1852, I think. Uh, but I think he's really the first really big, important speaker. Then there's a period of a whole lot of very weak speakers, you know, the 1830s until the late 1830s until the Civil War. There's a whole bunch of people. It's a sort of rotating list of, of, of things we'll talk about. Yeah, and that's a period when there's a lot of disputed ballots. I think we get strong speakers again at the end of the 19th century and, and the beginning of the 20th century. And I think there's three names that come to mind here. Uh, James G. Blaine, who was speaker from 69 to 75. Uh, Thomas 
Reed, uh, sometimes called Czar Reed, who was the speaker in the 1890s, and Joseph Cannon, who was a speaker in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and what made, I think, these speakers particularly important was this is a time in which the size of the house is growing tremendously, the, the organizational complexity of the house is growing tremendously. You know, when, when Henry Clay was speaker, there were like 50 guys in the house. Now you've got hundreds of guys in the house and organizing a body that's, that's getting progressively larger, you know, requires levels of organization. And the speaker, if he's a strong speaker, you know, is in charge of things like the Rules Committee, various committee appointments. Congress's, you know, work is done partially on the floor, but largely through committees. Uh, you know, and these are speakers who are able to, you know, uh, Appoint committees, speakers, uh, members to committees, choose committee chairmen, select rules committees, and able to sort of rule through those kinds of mechanisms. So there's a bureaucratic role of the speakership that really develops significantly in the late 19th century. Yeah, and then as we move into the 20th century, we get, I mean, probably the most, what would you say the most powerful speaker of all time is Sam, or most important is Sam Rayburn? One can make a very good argument for that, yes. So he's speaker um, from in the, the 40s. 40s and the 50s and until 1961. And he right. has some three split up uh, terms. Yeah, he's the longest serving in terms of the amount of time he served as speaker, but he serves three separate stints. Yeah, that's right. Because as we saw, we saw this most recently with Nancy Pelosi. People, you could be speaker, then you lose the majority, mm -hmm. and then you're leader of the opposition, and then you're you speaker. Can be re-elected speaker. Exactly. So a lot of these figures end up doing that. But Rayburn... I think well, he's important for a number of reasons. Um, his speakership coincides with some pretty big things going on in the to world. Be sure. <laughs> but he's all you know. He's speaker, for example, during the civil rights, the, the first you know the the, the post war civil rights movement when that yeah. legislation is going through through Congress. Um, and he's speaker. So whereas Clay is comes to prominence as a speaker when the presidents are relatively weak mm. and the presidency is relatively weak, Rayburn in contrast, is speaker during a period when the presidency is actually quite strong. Yes. But in most cases, so during the 40s, um, in particular, the presidents are of his own party or the, in terms of FDR and Truman. So mm. Rayburn was a Democrat. It's different during the 50s, during the two, the two uh, administrations of, of Eisenhower. Uh, but Rayburn's... So what we see is Rayburn is a powerful speaker at a time when the presidency is powerful, but the president, he's not at odds with the president mm. for much of the time. Uh, uh, but he's in working in con conjunction with the president, which makes for quite a formidable partnership. Mm. Um, well, the other thing Rayburn has is Rayburn has a fairly sizable majority in, in the House. You know, and, and how powerful the speaker is. I think we're going to see this in the years in the years to come. In the days we, to come. <laughs> in the days, hours to come, over the next 15 minutes. Um, you know, when you have a, a speaker with a very strong majority, you tend to have a very strong speakership. And this is sort of obvious. But when you have a, you know, s small majority like Kevin McCarthy's going to have, and especially when it's very divided, um, it can be, it means, it means your, your power as speaker is, is severely limited. And Rayburn's interesting because even though you know, he's a Democrat, but the Democratic Party in the 40s and it's 50s, conservative. well, it's, it's a weird coalition of, of stuff. Right? You've got Southern Democrats who are basically white supremacists and segregationists during this period, Northern Democrats who are potentially more progressive, uh, you know, in sort of a, this New Deal coalition that is maintaining itself into the post-war period, uh, and he has to sort of balance off those two halves of the Democratic Party. 
Um, after Ray Byrne, I would say Tip O'Neill is probably the most powerful speaker. Uh, you know, and he's the person who was speaker for the longest continuous term. He's speaker from 77 to 87. Um, and he's speaker uh, both under Carter and then under Reagan and had interesting relationships with both men. Um, you know, to some extent he got along better with Reagan, Reagan. than with Carter on a personal level. I think that's right. I mean, the 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 the, the thing about them supposedly was that that before six p.m. they were, were were political enemies, but after six p.m. they were were buddies and could have have drinks together. Uh, but he and he he and Carter didn't particularly get along. There's a story where Carter invited this the congressional leadership over for breakfast at the White House, and, and uh, Tip O'Neill, who was a man who who enjoyed a, a good sizable breakfast. Was served, I think, like sugar cookies and a cup of coffee, and was said like you know, he said like Mr. President, we won this election. We should get like you know steak and eggs. Well, and O'Neill represents that other part of the way, and so mm. you did a good job of describing under Rayburn the the kind of democratic coalition in the middle of the twentieth mm. century. By the seventies and eighties, that coalition is changing. The, the, the white supremacists are moving to, to another party. <laughs> yes, um, but. That you know, O'Neill represented that northern urban wing of the day. Mm. He was he was from Boston, and he represented. He was very much from Boston. Yeah, he he was he was a yeah he was a Boston guy, um, and and uh, represents that other wing. But you're you're right. There was a period of forty years mm. when the Democrats held the House, mm-hmm. and and often with quite sizable majorities. And the size of the majority really does make a difference. And so O'Neill. You know, led the opposition, although uh, to Reagan and Reaganism, from a position of relative strength because the Democrats still controlled the House, although there were the Reagan Democrats and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's always it's speaker the, the the speakership of the House is always a juggling act mm-hmm. because you've got to hold together. By definition, you you have the majority of the House, but often it's a quite difficult majority to hold together. If it's a larger majority, it's easier than uh, yeah, as we've seen in the past week than what. Uh, what happens when it's a small majority, but it's always a bit of a juggling act, and you need somebody who can both glad hand and bring people along, but also twist arms. Yes. And it's it's a pretty, it's a very tricky job to do. Um, and Tip O'Neill was very good at that. Yes, I think that's right. So we've had a bunch of speakers since, since Tip O'Neill, um, some of whom haven't lasted very long. Let's talk about Nancy Pelosi, who just stepped out as, as speaker. She, yeah, sorry, she had, before we do that. Yes. I think Newt Gingrich. Oh, you want to talk about Newt? Because okay. Newt wasn't speaker that long in the nineties. No, but he was important. Because ninety-four I think, to ninety-seven. Or yeah, something I like think that. he started to break politics in a way that we're still living with. So mm. you know, so so Newt Gingrich in ninety-four becomes the first Republican speaker in fifty years uh, because of the, the, that Democratic dominance was finally broken, and he comes in with his contract for America, and he anticipates a lot of the rightward turn that we see that we've seen hmm. uh in the past 25 or 30 years but he also kind of anticipated or his experience anticipated some of the problems that are now bedeviling the republican hmm. party in that he faced revolts and dissatisfaction from the right yeah of of the party so so to democrats newt gingrich appeared to be quite conservative and right wing and indeed he is hmm. or was uh, but he wasn't, you know, there were purity tests from from the right side of that party that ultimately led to him losing the speakership. We saw this with subsequent Republican speakers, um, you know, people like Paul Ryan and John Boehner, where 
they struggle to control the right wing of their mm -hmm. party, and this is what manifested itself this week. So I, I only mentioned Newt because he came before Nancy Pelosi, yeah. but we'll return Actually, to this. Well, but... one, one thing I want to say about Newt, one of the things that he did that I think was revolutionary was the ways in which he actually used... You mentioned C-SPAN earlier, the way he used C-SPAN. Because when C-SPAN gets introduced, he's one of the first people to recognize the potential of C-SPAN for communicating from the floor of the House directly to the American people in a, in a very new way. And Tip O'Neill actually called him out on this because at one point Newt gave a speech you know, where he's deriding various members of Congress who were not in the room. And, and Tip O'Neill said, no, no, you don't do that. Like, you, you, you know, we have a debates within the House about issues and when, and when you call somebody out, they have to be there. Yeah, and Gingrich represents what is now the new politics. So, mm. so part of what happened this week was these weren't ideological differences. You had people who are normally on the same side like Marjorie Taylor Greene mm. and Matt Gates opposing each other, at least notionally, this week over, over McCarthy's speakership. Yeah. Not really over ideology, right. but what we've seen is there's, there's a whole cadre of politicians that have emerged since the 90s, and, and I'm glad you mentioned Gingrich and the TV cameras, mm who are media figures first. It used to be you got ahead in Congress by serving your time and serving on committees, and you got better committee appointments the longer time you served with seniority and you waited, and Tip O'Neill represented that old mm. way of doing yeah. things. Gingrich, even if he didn't know it at the time, was ushering in this new era when politicians can achieve power mm. simply by being famous, and they become famous by being on TV. Yes, and one of the things actually I noticed about the the five or six Republicans who are constantly voting against McCarthy this week, you know, is they're not particularly senior in terms of the number of years in Congress, but they are all some of these Freedom Caucus members among the top money raisers in Congress. So like Matt Gates, who I'll, I'll be quiet about my opinions about Matt Gates, is is you know the top three or four people in terms of money raising. You know, and part of that's because he's really good at speaking to certain kinds of audiences. But Gates, Marjorie Taylor mm -hmm. Greene, Lauren Boebert, these are people... She's also in the top yeah, money raiser. ...who yeah. aren't very... They've they've achieved nothing as legislators. Right. There's no, there's no Boebert bill for anything. But, but they understand what they're doing, and mm -hmm. they're quite effective at it because they've achieved a great deal of power, as they demonstrated this week, um, because... because they're famous, and they're famous for being famous. Sure. And, and and the object of the game is to make sure you're on television, mm. which is why they're effective at raising money as well. So so I, I think yeah. Gingrich's speakership is the beginning. We, we didn't necessarily realize mm. it at the time of of this new way of doing politics and the kind of Sam Rayburn, Tip O'Neill, Henry Clay way of doing things <laughs> yes. has has changed. And, and I think Kevin McCarthy. You know, wants to be Tip O'Neill, but he's finding himself in a very new environment. Now he he's a he helped he, to create he, he helped to create it. He's a product mm -hmm. of it. I don't you know, Kevin McCarthy is, is going to you know be careful what you wish for. He's about to find out that his life achieving his life's ambition might not yeah. be only well, hope. Yeah, you know, the last three or four Republican speakers but, have, have all sort of left and and said, oh, I hated doing that job after they did it because they got attacked from the right. Right, exactly. So, so anyway, let's go back to Nancy Pelosi though. How would you fit her in this this pantheon of, of speakers? Well, first of all, she's a historically important figure because she's the first woman speaker. So, so, okay. so we can't neglect that. Uh, it's difficult. This is a bit like assessing athletes' performances, right? <laughs> because we tend to privilege the here and now mm. 
over the past. She did have a tumultuous, several tumultuous terms as speaker. Having said that, the legislative achievements are pretty considerable, going back to Obamacare, but all you know, mm-hmm. and and, and mo- mo- most of the achievements of the Biden administration, and I actually think the Biden administration has had a signif- pretty significant uh, record of achievement legislatively, considering how slim its majorities were, um, to a large extent can be attributed to Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi was also effective, not as speaker, but as leader of the opposition um, during the Trump administration. So I think her record as a legislator is incredibly impressive. I do think we have to, and we're historians, so we should know this, we need a little bit of perspective to assess this. I think Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to do in the here and now. I mean, I will note... You know, Nancy Pelosi had a majority of four back in 2021 when she was up for speaker. <laughs> and she and she faced significant opposition from the left of her party. Mm. And there was a there were if you think back two years, there were there were some moves to, to replace her. And she headed those off quite effectively. So so she's a very she has been and was a very, very effective legislator. And if you think about the legislative achievements of the past 12 years, you will find her fingerprints on them. Yeah. So I, I think her record is, I, I, I suspect she will stand up with most of the names we've just, stand up pretty well with most of the names we've just um, reviewed, mm. but it's probably too early to tell. What do you think? I, I've been amazed, just looking back at her record, I, I was amazed at how effective she was given her very slim majority. Right? I mean, I, there were a number of places during her tenure where, where, you know, bills came to the floor of the House where I said, this is not, there's no way this is going to pass, right? This is, the majorities are so slim, there's so much to, to, but she knew, she counted the votes so well, you know, with the Affordable Care Act, with, with the CARES Act, with the Inflation Reduction Act, with various other pieces of, that, that, that bills I thought were going to fail because the Democrats simply didn't have the numbers. She was able to, to time it so properly, you know, because I think part of the, Knowing when the the right moment to strike is part of this, uh, I think that spoke really well of her abilities. You know, she, as speaker, tried to keep a fairly ro- low profile. She didn't give flo- speeches from the floor, unlike Henry Clay or some of these other guys. Uh, she often didn't vote for bills. That's also one thing that some speakers do, where they decide to do this sort of uh, parliamentarian role, where they where they don't actively involved but she was very good at that sort of behind the scenes deal making and especially given that that you know there isn't the kind of earmarks pork barrel spending in recent congresses the way there was in the 20th century you know she didn't have as many carrots to offer as as prior speakers and so i think i i've been i would rank her very highly in terms of her abilities you know, whether you know the results i think you're right that yeah, I would say, you know, and apropos or in response to your, your comment about her success getting bills through, as you know, the speaker determines when things go forward. Exactly. And so basically, if Nancy Pelosi put a bill forward, it was going to pass, pass because she done her homework and done the, 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 the arm twisting or whatever was necessary mm. to, to, to make sure that was the case. So I think she deser- deserves a lot of credit for that. Also, I, I, you, apropos of your point about carrots, again, because of this new media landscape and the way political power and money is is very much determined by uh, how much FaceTime people are getting on relevant in relevant media networks, um, 
again, junior congresspersons can achieve a great deal of uh, notoriety and power by ignoring the speaker or attacking mm. the speaker. And again, she managed that. You know, for there have been lots of um, efforts to equate the so-called squad, you know, the, the kind of left-wing critics of, of Nancy Pelosi and the Freedom Caucus. But at the end of the day, people like Ilhan Omar and AOC have actually worked with Nancy Pelosi quite productively. I don't see that happening. We, you know, we for with Kevin McCarthy and and the, the the people who are voting against him this week. I may be wrong, but I don't think there's going to be the same level of party discipline. No, I don't think so. so. I don't think they're equivalent. I don't think they're equivalent in all kinds. I think that's a false equivalency in all kinds of ways. But I, I think yeah. uh, particularly with regard to this. So let's talk about speed, uh, or at least uh, the the elections where, where there were multiple ballots. Because this what happened this week was. A fairly rare occurrence. There hasn't been a dis- there hasn't been going to pass the one ballot in a hundred years. Of one hundred twenty seven speaker elections, only fifteen went to multiple ballots, um, and most of these in the nineteenth century. And the ones that really went to a lot of ballots, like this week, uh, were were all sort of mid nineteenth century ones. So let's let's talk about those. Yes. So the the one that got a lot of attention this week, uh, in the middle of the week. Mm was Frederick Gillette in 1923, who needed, how many ballots did he need? It was, it was nine. Nine ballots. Yeah, right, it was nine, right? And, um, and of course, there was the kind of, the fact that it was exactly a century ago, mm. and it went to nine ballots. Although then once, once uh, was it Thursday night when, when um, uh, McCarthy went, lost 11 ballots, we kind of stopped talking about Frederick Gillette in 1923, went back to the 1850s. Mm. Uh, Gillette's actually, I think, probably the closest an- analog to what happened this week. Yeah, why? Why do you think that? Uh, so Gillette was actually the incumbent speaker in, in 1923. So, you know, he was not running for election to this, to this, to this. He was running for re-election to that seat. Uh, but he faced, he was a Republican, he faced some object, uh, objections from very progressive Republicans. The Republican Party at the time had sort of the sort of mainstream business Republicans, but also these sort of progressive uh, Republicans, the sort of Teddy Roosevelt-ish wing of the party. So where do they fit on the spectrum, David? So they, Are they would, to his right or to his left? I think I they'd mean, be on his left, yeah. but but right and left, it's hard to... It's not the same, same spectrum. The, the spectrum is, is the, the axis is pivoted in some ways. Um, and these progressive members of, of his own party wanted concessions, and one of the things they wanted was a seat on the Rules Committee. And... Um, after he gave them concessions like a seat in the rules committee, they ended up voting for him. Uh, so in many ways, in some ways, like this this past week, where you know the the carrots that, that Kevin McCarthy offered about changing the various rules and about appointing people uh, from the Freedom Caucus to uh, to prominent seats on on committees, uh, I think is is sort of and the end result's pretty pretty similar. Uh, so I think it's actually a fairly analogous story. Um, the 19th century examples are much mess, mess. Yeah, so 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 I want to park Frederick Gillette in 1923 because I want to go back to the 1840s and 50s, mm. um, and, and we don't have to go through each one of them. Yeah. I mean, the, the notable ones are what 1849. It's 63 ballots mm. to elect Howell Cobb. Yeah. Uh, 1855 and six going into 1856. Mm. It took 133 ballots. This was the next one that got all the attention this week yeah. to elect Nathaniel Banks. 
And then in 1859 and 60, there were 44 ballots to elect William Pennington. Yes. So much was made this week in the commentary that, of course, this is the run-up to the Civil War. David, can you give us a brief summary of what's going on? And then I want to advance my thesis to you or, and challenge you. Well, let's go, let's go with, I think the most interesting of these is the, the 1855 right. election. Uh, 133 ballots. Right. And, and, and it took two months. Um, so the context for this, this is an immediate aftermath of the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, this amazingly divisive piece of legislation that really shook up uh, politics and shook up the, the, the political party system. Um, and in the aftermath of that, there was a very contentious election. You have the Whig Party basically dying. You have the Democratic Party deeply split uh, between pro-Kansas and, and anti-Kansas uh, uh, Democrats and, and Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats. You've got the rise of new parties like the Know Nothing or American Party, which was an anti-immigrant party, and the Republican Party, which was then largely known as the anti-Nebraska uh, Party, um, which the name didn't stick around very much. And, and it's in a moment of, of such political chaos that there are people who are identifying with one party when they get elected, and by the time they actually get to Congress, they're identifying with a different party. So, so it's a it's a hodgepodge of, of different political parties, none of whom have a majority when they get to Congress. Uh, and in the sort of two months of ballots, they end up electing uh, Nathaniel Banks, who had run as a know nothing, but by the time he actually gets elected, he's identifying mostly as a Republican. Um, he's from Massachusetts. Uh, he ends up becoming a political general in the Civil War and doesn't do a particularly great job. Uh, but I think that sort of speaks to, you know, really how divided the political parties were and how messy political parties were and how very little party discipline there was because the parties themselves were, were somewhat um, inchoate in, in, in structure. And Banks had very little power as speaker, right? He had no power to sort of, other than sort of calling the balls and the strikes, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the entire body for the next two years was in in large part in chaos. Uh, so that was pretty messy. And they only actually ended up electing him after those two months because they decided to abandon the rule that you needed a majority of the votes, which is what happened with McCarthy, and only elected him with a plurality. Uh, so they actually changed the rules to end this, this two-month-long deadlock um, and all those ballots. Uh, 1859 is a, is a fairly similar story. The Republican John Sherman uh, from Ohio uh, had the plurality of the votes, but he didn't have the support of Southerners because he was fairly strong anti-slavery, and they end up compromising on a freshman congressman, uh, William Pendleton, although he was um, fairly advanced in age and in his career, so he was a, a senior politician. And he, you know, basically had very little power over the next two years to do much of of anything. Uh, and if you look at sort of the ways and the role that Congress played during the secession crisis and trying to resolve that, it was a mess. I mean, it was a mess in part because the speakership was so weak. So, you know, what does that mean then for Kevin McCarthy? I mean, I, hopefully we don't end up with another civil war, but I think it does mean that if this history is any any guy, that he's going to have a heck of a time in the next two years, if he lasts that long. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the rule changes that he agreed to is that a single congressperson can can call it a, another election. It's so basically like a no a no confidence vote right. can happen any time from any member of. And one of the things about you know that that, that that's important to recognize about the speakership. You know, and I think I mentioned this earlier. You know, Henry Clay had dozens of guys to worry about. McCarthy's got four hundred and thirty-five guys in that room, people in that room. You know, um, knowing what all those individual people want and what their constituencies are, and and how you know you can leverage them. That's that's a very very difficult job. And Almost half of them are from the other party. Yes. Um, and, and one thing we saw this week, which was quite interesting, was very, um, very good discipline by the Democrats. They both stayed and continued to vote for Hakeem Jeffries. Who ended with more votes than McCarthy on yeah. many of those ballots, yes. which is um, amusing. Uh, on Twitter, somebody tweeted that Kevin McCarthy set the record for losing to Hakeem Jeffries. <laughs> and Hakeem Jeffries' brother, who's a professor, history professor... Mm-hmm. Tweeted, no, that's not true. I've lost Twitter. <laughs> quite funny. Um, but um, the Democrats showed a great deal of discipline. Uh, I mean, it may be a case. So I'm thinking about the, the, the big fight that will be looming sooner than one cares to think will be over the debt limit again. Mm. There's always a debt limit crisis, especially when the Republicans control the House, uh, about whether to raise the debt limit. We've talked about this in the past, and undoubtedly we'll talk about it in the future. And one one could worry and say, well, what's going to happen then? You know, they, they you know the the Freedom Caucus; these people were willing to crash the government. They'll they'll certainly be willing to crash the economy, and I'm sure that's true. But of course, they can raise the debt limit with the votes of the Democrats and just four Republicans, or five Republicans, if that vote comes to the floor. Which right, the Speaker um, may not let that happen. Yeah, although speakers end up, and McCarthy's an interesting guy because for all his embrace of Trump and Trumpism and his, his about face on January 6th, two years ago, after in the aftermath of January, the January 6th um, uh, attacks, um, his history is as a kind of establishment guy and an institutionalist. And whether he wants to be the guy who presides over the, the collapse of the global economy... Mm. I, I, I'm skeptical about that. So, so um, anyway, the, the, the point being, you're right, he, he has 435 people that he has to kind of deal with. Uh, and the ones on his own side might be more difficult than the opposition, which seems to be a bit better organized and a bit more disciplined at the moment than, than, than his own uh, caucus. But he may have options. But mm. by reaching across the aisle, which we always, everybody says they want to do and pays lip service to, um, there's always a political price to be paid for that. So one can imagine a scenario where, and he may not survive as long as the next debt limit crisis, but exactly. <laughs> um, you know, if he does reach across the aisle, that that will then prompt, on a you know his overthrow by by his own caucus. Oh, to be sure, because um, I think that that that's the kind of thing where the second he does that, that's when they have the vote of no confidence for him, and and then we're back here. Then we're back here again. So, so. let me let me offer my my. Uh, theory to you in, in thinking about this episode and reading on this mm. episode. So we think about the periods when there have been um, the most contentious uh, votes over the speakership. We're talking about the 1850s in, in the main, mm. uh, but we also see uh, Frederick Gillette in, 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 the, in the early 20s. These are periods of party realignment 
And so what we're seeing, what you see is, and you're right, mm. you're an expert in this and I'm not, but the, the, the political party system in the 1850s is a mess because the Whig party has died and there's kind of a reconfiguration going on both north and south. And it's, as you know from trying to teach this, you try to explain this all to students and they're like, okay, which are the Democrats, which are the Republicans? Exactly. Well, it's not like that. <laughs> it's really confusing. And, and, but, but what we see is when there's partisan realignment, mm. there's a lack of party discipline and we get these contentious speaker debates or speaker elections. And then when we get party, a degree of party stability, mm. things are relatively clear. And so to some extent, the thesis I'm making for you is this is evidence of, I mean, predictions of the death of the Republican Party, I think, have been overblown. But there's something going on in the, in the Republican Party, and we can trace this back to Newt Gingrich if mm -hmm. we want. Um, but there's a massive realignment going on, and there's a fight within the Republican Party about what the Republican Party should be. And this is what we saw on display this week for, for the world to see. And so, so my thesis is mm. we get these contentious moments and these these uh, contested uh, con uh, these contested contests. That's a stupid way to frame it. Contested uh, speakership uh, battles when there's a party realignment going on. And so, what we may be in the midst of is some kind of party re partisan realignment, at least on the right, and it may be a remaking of the Republican Party. Um, as a result, and that's what we saw in the 1850s. That's what we were seeing a little bit mm. of in the aftermath of in the 1920s. In many respects, it happened in the 1910s. Yeah, but this could be a manifestation of that. So that's my thesis. What do you think? I think there's a lot of merit to that. I mean, the question then is about causality and correlation and, and chicken and eggs, right? Okay. About about whether you know these divisive speaker elections are the product of party realignments or causing party realignments. Right, okay. Um, or are happening at the same time as party realignments for independent reasons that are commensurate with it. Um, and I think it can be all the the above, potentially. Um, you know, what's going to happen, you know, I think both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party at the moment are are changing in interesting ways. They're both becoming more polarized. The Republican Party is becoming, I think, polarized in a more profound way than the Democrats are. Um, you know, and we can think about strong speakerships in the past, whether that's Tip O'Neill or Rayburn or even going back to, to Henry Clay, where, um, you know, the, 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 what it meant to be a member of a political party was less, even when the parties were relatively strong, what it meant to be a member of those parties was was fairly situational and regionally dependent, you know, and so defining the ideology of the Democratic Party in 1977. I don't know what you know. It's there, there, there. It was a these were big tent parties that had big internal fights within them then. Um, so I think you know part of it is about party realignment. Part of it's also just about numbers and about you know how big a majority you have. Um, you know, and I think Tip O'Neill had the advantages in pretty large majorities. Right, but but the the absence of a large majority reflects the kind of party realignment mm -hmm. I'm talking right, about. Yeah. The fact that the 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 electorate itself yeah. doesn't quite know where it's, yeah. it's sitting in all this. Um, although Henry Clay was a strong you know uh, speaker when there were no parties, essentially. Right, um, and obviously that's a 
very particular moment in American history where the where the party structures were, uh, you know, the Federalists were dead and the Weeks. Yeah, but you, you can go so far back that I actually don't think the comparisons are terribly enlightening, right, even sure. though that's my period. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously the more recent stuff is, is much more relevant to this. Right, well, we will see in the week... Oh, you have one more... Yeah, I want to ask you, what do you think is going to happen to Kevin McCarthy now? Oh, I, mean, I think talked he's, a little bit about I think, this already. Well, so I think in terms of legislation getting through the House, I think there's going to be none. Um, I think it's going to be very hard for him to get a... a coalition together that's going to pass anything and if it does get passed it's not going to be things that's going to get through the senate or through president biden so you know bills becoming laws over the next two years uh unless something very profound happens i think there's not going to be much uh which is going to place limitations obviously on on mccarthy but it's going to place limitations on on president biden as well his, his agenda is is going to be pursued through other avenues besides legislation. I think McCarthy's going to have to hold on for dear life to, to maintain his speakership for the next two years. I think there's going to be deep fights within the Republican Party. I think there's going to be deep fights over, uh, you know, the presidential uh, nomination from the party. There's going to be deep fights about how they use Congress. There's going to be efforts within certain parts of his party to have investigations of this, that, and the other thing. I think that's one of the things the Freedom Caucus very much wanted to do was to weaponize the uh, investigative powers of Congress to do uh, uh, Benghazi hearings, but times a million. Yeah, for Hunter. We're going to hear a lot about Hunter, Hunter Biden's laptop. laptop. Exactly. I'm going to know what kinds of operating system he was using and what version of Windows and all kinds of Yeah, we're going to learn all kinds of things. Um, or learn, quote-unquote. Um so I think there's going to be a lot of that happening, and he's going to have to sort of navigate that particular uh, set of uh, landmines. I think he's not going to get a lot of sleep. Yeah, I mean, it, all of the, you know, in all the examples we've used of people who had contested elections, hmm. they didn't have very successful speakerships. No. And they didn't last very long. And I, I think... You know, uh, one thing I'm actually saying, I'm almost surprised that it's McCarthy won this this election, right? Because, I mean, if you look at some of those other contested elections, the 55 one, the 59 one, a few of the others, the people who are actually doing well in ballots one, two, and three often don't win, right? So it's not as if, you know, the, the one 1923 is the exception to this. Um, but oftentimes the people who are, who are in the taking over the speakership were people who were dark horse candidates. Um, and I, that's something that I thought could have happened this week. Um, obviously didn't, but, uh, well, there was no real credible alternative. Yeah, but that was the same was true in 19 or in 1855 and 1859, right? The people they ended up with were, were not people that anybody had in their list of potential speakers when, when, when they started the balloting process. So, um, well, the thing is, I think McCarthy has wanted this. For his entire political life, certainly since he got to Congress in two thousand and seven, sure, and was you know he he was consistent all week in saying I will not give up, um, which of no, course is what you have to say, <laughs> of course. But now what he did give up was all kinds of power. <laughs> I mean, right. he made uh, so he has the speakership, but he has no none of the power that even Nancy Pelosi had, right? In terms of of you know, in some ways he he is he is ceded to the Freedom Caucus a lot of the appointment powers that. That he would have had, 
Uh, this issue about you know no confidence votes essentially to remove him as speaker has you know strips him of any real leverage. Well, you say even Nancy Pelosi. I would say he doesn't compare to Nancy Pelosi because politics is is partially a lot of it is about image mm. and perspective. And Nancy Pelosi was perceived as powerful. Mm, yes. And and Kevin McCarthy, no matter how you feel about him or his politics was ritually humiliated for five straight days <laughs> yes, on yes. international television um, and had to make a huge number of concessions to get the job he wanted. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I guess he'll wake up today. I mean, there's a five-hour time difference. Uh, he may be, He's probably already awake. It's now 7 o'clock in the morning uh, in Washington. Happy? Um, <laughs> but, but, but he's got a... You know, I, I would not recommend that he watches Stephen Colbert's monologues from the past week. That's all I can say. I know, I can be sure. <laughs> anyway, all right, time for last draft, Frank. What you got? I want to do a bit of log rolling, to use a legislative expression. So I want to recommend a podcast that I'm appearing on. So I, I, I If apologize. you want more of Frank, yes. hey, this is how you can get it. I apologize. So Monticello has a podcast called In the Course of Human Events. And uh, I appeared on a recent episode, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and it was called a Washington fish tale. It's uh, I, I talk in that they, they look at events in, in uh, related to Jefferson's life, and I looked at um, uh, there, there's a belief, and I write about this in the in, the, in my book that I've just uh, uh, forthcoming I've in just all major finished retail. the manuscript before Christmas, so I'm feeling pretty happy about that. Anyway, I write about there was a there was a time in the summer of 1790 when Washington and Jefferson may have gone fishing together. Uh, now, I actually believe they didn't go fishing together, and I explained this on the podcast why they didn't go fishing. But um, it, it's called A Washington Fish Tale, and if you want to listen to that, you can find it at the Course of Events podcast. And I want to thank um, Jim Ambusky, uh, who's now at George Mason University, who uh, did the podcast along with Kate Brown from uh, Western Kentucky University, who appeared on it as well. And we talked about this uh, non-fishing trip. Non-fishing yeah, trip. So, okay. it, 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 although it's in the course of events podcast, this is in the course of a non-event. Okay. So, so this fishing trip that didn't happen, just so listeners can have an image in their mind, is this like? Tom and George in a small little rowboat, or are they in a much larger vessel? They were in a larger vessel. Okay. In fact, it may have been a sloop owned by Alexander Hamilton. Oh, and so in fancy. some versions of this story, Hamilton's there too. Uh, and the three of them go fishing. Um, I Again, I don't... Or the two of them go fishing and Hamilton talks the whole time. Right. <laughs> um, Washington was recovering from a bout of pneumonia, and he wanted to go fishing to restore his health. He was a, kind of active in outdoor pursuits. And he invited Jefferson to go fishing with him. And I don't believe Jefferson actually went because he had a migraine. Anyway, listen, <laughs> listen to the podcast. Anyway. Uh, the, 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 Sorry, George. I don't want to go the, fishing. got a migraine. In the course of human events. Yeah. I mean, Washington is always presented as this manly man, tough guy, and Jefferson not so much. And this fishing trip kind of reinforces that stereotype if you're inclined to believe it. Right. Anyway, what do you, fishing is a man. Okay. Yeah. Right. What do you have for us, David? Uh, well, uh, there was a news story uh, that I think got lost uh, in the during the um, lame duck session that I think is going to be fascinating as it moves forward, and that's about a debate that happened in the Rules Committee over whether or not to give the Cherokee Nation a non-voting seat in Congress. And this origin of this uh, debate goes actually all the way back to 1835. Uh, in the Treaty of New Echota, which is the treaty that the Cherokee signed, or some of the Cherokee signed, 
uh, that culminated in the, the Trail of Tears. And one of the things that treaty said was the Cherokee are entitled to a non-voting member of Congress. And for a variety of complicated reasons having to do both with what was going on in Washington and what was going on in Indian Territory, uh, that didn't happen in the 19th century, didn't happen in the 20th century. Uh, but there seems to be a movement afoot to actually give um, the Cherokee Nation uh, this non-voting seat uh, and 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 we will see whether where this falls in in Kevin McCarthy's list of things he may actually be able to accomplish as speaker. Uh, but uh, that may be uh, in the offing to have this the seat actually come to fruition. So would the Rules Committee have to approve that? Yes. Right. And and, and procedures for electing this person and, and what have you. And obviously there there are a handful of uh, non-voting members of Congress right now. There's a, a representative from Puerto Rico, I believe. There's a representative from Washington, D.C. Uh, there may be one or two other uh, non-voting members, uh, but this will be uh, a, a seat for a Native nation, which I think will be historically important. And I think sort of the roots of this going back to this treaty from 1835 is, is fascinating. That's, that's interesting. So there'd be issues about how to actually select the person in the event that they... That Congress does approve this, yeah. and, and well, anyway, that's a yeah, fascinating. Some, story. some interesting to watch uh, among the other things that are chaos in, in Kevin McCarthy's speakership. Right, cheers, cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.